everybody and welcome to today's FS Club webinar. My name is Simon Mills. I'm an associate at Zien and I'm standing in for our usual chair, Professor Michael Minelli. Now, today's webinar covers employee ownership trusts, which can provide an attractive exit route for retiring entrepreneurs. And we're very privileged to have William Franklin from uh, Share Scheme Specialist Pet uh, uh, Pet Franklin here to explain how they actually work and how they differ from management buyouts. Next slide, please. Um, here is our uh, agenda for this morning. As always, we're going to be running a tight ship. In fact, I'm going to start my timer now. So please submit any questions you have for William using the tools to the right-hand side of your screen. And he's going to answer a selection of them at the end. Now, William is actually going to be giving his email during the presentation. Um, so if you want to have a, a fuller discussion, please feel free to uh, continue that conversation offline. As always, we are going to be recording this webinar and the recording and the slides are going to be available on our website, which I urge you all to explore, as there are lots and lots of other interesting things on there. Now, before I introduce William, a very quick word from our sponsors. <laughs> we are immensely grateful to FS Club members who during the pandemic have allowed us to open up our webinars to everyone. Uh, FS Club is the number one networking group of senior executives in financial services. It's very much a 21st century version of the coffee houses that formed the original foundations of the City of London and it provides a forum where leading industry thinkers can meet to discuss key events and developments likely to affect the future of financial services over drinks and refreshments in a club atmosphere. If you'd like to know more, then please do check our website for information. I would also very much like to thank the sponsors of the ESOP Centre who have enabled today's webinar to take place. Next slide, please. And now we move on to the main event. Joining us from the wild and beautiful coastline of Keredigan, we have William Franklin. William is an experienced share schemes practitioner and a chartered accountant who is not only recognized as a leading advisor on employee share schemes, uh, but advises HMRC, is an honorary research fellow for the ESOP Center and also a member of the Chartered Institute of Taxation. William, please tell us about employee ownership trusts. Thank you very much, Simon. Um, yeah, could I have the next slide, please? Yeah, what we're going to discuss this morning is employee ownership trusts and particularly how they might be used as an alternative exit route for owner managers and how they compare with another route which is the management buyout so in a sense it is a, a new style of buyout it's been around basically since finance act 2014 introduced a new legislation that was modeled on the john lewis uh, structure of company ownership. There are now many dozens of other companies that have followed down the John Lewis route as a result of this legislation. And what that involves is indirect, collective employee ownership through a trust, having control of the share capital of the company 
for the long-term benefit of employees as a whole. So what we're talking about here is an employee buyout rather than a more narrow um, management buyout. Next slide, please. Yeah, this just sort of illustrates structurally what we're talking about in its simplest form. Imagine the company at the moment has one shareholder, only 100% of the company. After conversion to EOT ownership, what you'll have is the company actually owned by the EOT trust. And in return, the shareholder has swapped essentially their shareholding for debt owed to the former owner by the EOT. The EOT is a trust, so it needs to have trustees, and that's normally a corporate trustee vehicle. Now, an entrepreneur who wants to retire often has quite a difficult dilemma. What do they do? Do they sell to a trade buyer? If they're big enough, would private equity be interested with all the that comes with private equity ownership? Could they sell to the management? Those are the options normally, and until EOTs came along, that wasn't really much of a choice than either to go down one of those routes or to wind down the business and close it, which actually happened rather often, actually. Or something else, which also happened quite often, which was do nothing and leave a mess for the employees and the family to sort out afterwards. Next slide, please. Just thinking about external sales to a trade or private equity. These routes normally are thought to maximise the sale proceeds for the vendor, which often is the key consideration for them. Uh, but very often that, of course, will not be achieved maximum proceeds unless there is some form of earnings related post sale earnout. So what you actually have with that structure is quite an intrusive and pressurized end to someone's career. Uh, you find that you've got a new owner who's not particularly interested in the culture or the employees or the locality of the business you've created. And there's often quite a lot of pressure to deliver short-term results uh, to justify the price the purchaser paid. If you go down the MBO route, is the question then often comes down is, how do the management team afford to buy it? Because they'll be taking on, in essence, some form of debt or debt obligations. And often they won't want that responsibility. Or, you know, very often what happens is there's a sort of subtle pressure developing um, for the owner to sell at an undervalued, to allow the management team to buy at the price they can afford, which of course means that you don't actually get a particularly good price. So in this situation, you know, how does, uh, how does the entrepreneur retire? So that's the way the model comes in. Remember, what this is, is selling your company to a trust that you have created, a special trust that conforms with the legislative requirements of Finance Act 2014, and swapping your shares for debt owed to you by that trust. Next slide. So what we have with the EOT solution is a form of uh, what's sometimes called vendor funding or patient capital. The essence is that there is deferred consideration, uncertain, because it's ultimately dependent on the company below the EOT making future profits and having future cash to fund the EOT, to allow the EOT to pay its debt to the vendor. 
Now, sometimes when a business converts to VAT ownership, there may already be a certain amount of cash having been accumulated over the years in the company that can be released quickly through this mechanism to pay off some of the initial consideration. But uh, going forward, and, that, and indeed at, at that time, what do you actually have happening within the dynamics of the EOT structure is money flowing from the company to its shareholder, the trust. And that is a movement of money from a company to its shareholder, which is a distribution. And distributions require distributable reserves, as well as having cash. So you actually, within the OT structure, have quite an important safeguard, which I sometimes call the double lock, that for the money to flow from the company to the trust, you need distributable profits and cash. Going forward, of course, any company that goes down this route will need to be thinking ahead and working out whether it's reasonable that it will have sufficient cash in the future to pay off the rest of the consideration. Next slide. Now, tax incentives are one of the features of the EOT legislation. And there is a very generous tax regime now for EOTs following Finance Act 2014. Up to that point, the sale of the company's shares by the vendor to the EOT was an event that gave rise to capital gains tax. And you can see the problem. You have to pay capital gains tax, but you wouldn't, the EOT doesn't necessarily have any money with which to pay you. But that doesn't stop there being a capital gains tax charge. So anyone who wanted to do the kind of John Lewis model had to be very determined and very altruistic until legislation was changed. And it was a big change because what it says is that if you sell majority control to an EOT, then that sale is exempt from CGT. That is a very generous relief. Um, the transaction still involves shares being exchanged, so there is still a small amount of stamp duty payable, so it's not completely tax-free, but it is exempt from CGT. Um, there are also other important tax rates, which is that a company that is owned and controlled by an EOT can pay its employees tax-free bonuses each year, each tax year, up to a maximum of £3,600 a year. EOT-owned companies are really the only vehicle now where you can pay people wages tax-free. And that obviously is a, another very big attraction to the EOT model. I just want to just mention something where the ESOP Centre has a very important historical role. Um, the whole structure of EOTs is predicated on the basis that that distribution of money by the company to its shareholders while it's a distribution for company law purposes, is not a dividend, taxable as a dividend, by the EOT itself. Now that rather important fundamental pillar on which the whole EOT regime is built is not actually set out in the legislation. And the revenue not actually sort of published official um, concession on the point. But rather importantly, the EOT secured the agreement of HMRC to that principle in correspondence some years ago. Next slide. So let's remember the basic model. You have a trust in the form of the EOT owning the company, having control of the company, and the vendor 
being left with debt, which over a period of time, as the company itself can afford to, fund the EOT is paid off. Next slide. That's a bit more about that income tax relief. £3,600 per annum per person. It is not a payment of a dividend. This is quite an important point. It is not a payment of a dividend by the company to shareholders because the employees are not shareholders. It's a payment of wages, a bonus, payable by the company as part of its compensation. So it isn't actually directly linked and doesn't require actually profits to be made out of which uh, this bonus is paid. But normally what you would expect to happen is that it would be structured as some kind of profit sharing scheme. Because that's the underlying reality of an EOT. You haven't got an owner, classical shareholder, taking out a profit through dividends. So there should be more profits available. And the way that is shared amongst the beneficiaries of the trust, the employees, is through enhanced pay in the form of profit sharing. Next slide, please. All right. Um, we've talked a little bit about all of this already. Um, the big relief, of course, is the 2014 uh, non-change to the Finance Act, which allowed the sale to be completely free of capital gains tax. That does come with a price, a big price, which is that essentially the owner is handing over the keys of the council to the EOT. The owner, in various guises, may well continue, if they want, on the scene for quite a long time after this has happened. But a really fundamental change has occurred by which the EOT has control. And it's built, it's because of that fundamental change that these tax reliefs are permitted. Now, the idea, to be fair, I think originated from the Lib Dems as part of the coalition agreement. And it, they were the driving force behind this legislation. But it is legislation which has now, I think, been enthusiastically adopted by the Conservatives, or at least embraced by many of them. And likewise, the Labour Party, in, you know, both uh, its previous left-wing incarnation and its more moderate incarnation today, seem to be quite positive towards the whole concept of the Next paragraph. Next slide, I do beg your pardon. So, what lay behind giving all this tax relief away, restructuring? Well, I think there is quite a fundamental vision that lies behind EOTs. It's a vision that you can summarize in a number of ways, one of which is long termism the idea that employer owned companies will look at business issues from a more long term perspective. And also, that you would hope and expect that by being the owners, the employees become more engaged through being the owners and take on greater responsibility that ownership brings. So that's at the company level. I mean, at a deeper level, you can look at this and say, well, isn't this something to do with reforming or even redeeming capitalism, spreading income and wealth more widely? It can have a lot to do with the localism issue of trying to encourage greater um, support for local communities because you know, one of the problems of often selling a business is that the new owners aren't really interested in where it's located. But if you sell it to the employees, they are interested in where it's located and it tends to remain there uh, after the sale. So going back to the point about long-termism and uh, redeeming capitalism, 
A lot of this is about trying to secure jobs and better jobs. The good news is that this actually seems to work out economically rather well because there's quite a lot of evidence now accumulating that actually employee-owned companies with this sort of structure perform better than companies without it, certainly over the long term. Next slide. As I said, you can look at these statistics and there's, other, there's various sources of them. The Employee Ownership Association gathers them together quite regularly. But that's the, you know, the, the headlines are quite impressive. Next slide. And next slide. We talked a lot about tax and ownership, and that obviously is really important, certainly in the conversion of a company to EOT ownership. But actually, what really matters long term in an EOT owned company is cash and culture. Because future cash flows are key. You know, that's how the vendors are paid off. That's how the employees actually see a financial benefit to themselves, not just in keeping their jobs and being more secure, but actually profit sharing. So the price at which the company is sold to the EOT is key. And it needs to be one that the company can sustain over the long term. Because very often the sale terms of an EOT will involve consideration being paid over many years. So it's not just a question of what the price is, it's also the terms. And really what one is looking for is a price which is fair to the vendor, which allows them to receive fair rewards for all their efforts in building the business, but doesn't put the business, when looked at in the longer term, under undue strain in trying to service it. Because you need a, you need a price which will allow the employees to have some expectation that once the vendor has been paid off or a lot of their consideration has been paid off, they can start to benefit financially as well. Because what you want to do, and if you're going to be successful with an EOT, is you have to engender a culture of employee responsibility as well as just rights. And you also need, over time, to grow management internally who accept that ethos. Next slide. Remember how the structure of an EOT looks. You have an EOT owning the company, and above that you have a corporate trustee. I say it's a corporate trustee, it could be individuals, but we rarely suggest that because individuals change and it's much better to have a permanent structure of a trustee. In which case the question then is, who are the directors of the corporate trustee? Because what you're creating with this structure is something really quite remarkable. We're injecting into UK corporate governance a two-tier board structure with the corporate trustee essentially acting as a supervisory board. Now that raises a whole host of questions that we are in the UK now having to learn how to deal with. How do you, for example, get employee engagement? into this structure properly. If you're going to have good employee responsibility, you need engagement as well. Should that be a, a council? Now, people think the legislation must all prescribe all this, but it doesn't actually. It's not prescriptive. It allows companies to work out what is best for them. 
And I think that's quite wise because, as I said, next slide, there are parallels um, in terms of the two-tier board structure with what other countries around the world are doing. Um, we just don't haven't just done it in this country. So there are a lot of lessons which, if we want to, we can learn from other other countries. But the lessons and the issues that we need to consider are, the, are, are reasonably apparent already. Next slide. So, one of the most, what exactly is the role of this trustee board? I mean, the trustee board, I mean, uh, has dual responsibilities. The directors are directors of the company with the responsibilities of being a director, and they are also trustees. So you have legal and fiduciary responsibilities. But what do they do? Well, they could be the moral compass for the company. They might be the arbiter, for example, of the type of tax mitigation strategy the business has in the future. They can be the arbiter of disputes sometimes with the operating company. Because remember, what happens with an AOT is the, the actual running of the company, the, 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 the operating company and its board will normally continue unchanged after an EOT conversion. It's the owner that has changed. So they can potentially be an arbiter when there are disputes. Um, I mean, more generally, their role probably is to hold the executive to account and its strategy and to challenge that strategy of the, of the management of the company. Ultimately, in the future, they will be the people who appoint the MD and possibly the rest of the board of the operating company. So their role is supervisory, as I say, rather than operational or executive. But just sometimes they might face having to make a very big decision. And the most obvious one is, what happens if someone comes along and makes an offer for the company that is now in EOT ownership? Ultimately, as the controlling shareholder, they will make the final call on whether that goes ahead or not and on what terms. So, you know, sometimes they will have to take control of the, of the wheel, so to speak, in those sort of situations. But most of the time, it is the operating company that's making the, the decisions and running the business. But it's good practice, I think, to try and clarify as soon as you can what boundaries of responsibility are between these two boards. And also decide how they're appointed, how the directors of the trustee can be appointed, and where do employees get involved? Do you have an employee council? Do you elect people as directors of this trustee board? And I think there one has to keep perspective that EOT and companies will go through an evolutionary journey. To begin with, there's the whole process of converting, of changing the ownership structure, doing the deal, getting that up and running. You need trustees who are capable of making the right decisions at that time. Then you enter into a transitional period with the ATs, where actually the consideration that is payable to the vendors is still outstanding. And during that period, the vendors will have all sorts of factors and limitations on them, or rather the company will be have placed on it various factors and limitations, because the vendors are behaving at this point rather like banks and have powers of intervention not dissimilar from banks. And then really, once those factors have gone or started fading away, you move to a more mature EOT, 
where it is very clearly the employees who are in charge and responsible. So next slide, please. There's five minutes to go, William. Right, that's a warning from me. Um, EOTs, just to quickly cover this, there are obviously some very strict conditions that need to be met in order to get these into the, into the regime. I'm not going to go through them all, but the company needs to be trading. All employees have to benefit. There has to be some equality on the basis on which they benefit. So the trust is not like a classic EBT, which is very discretionary. There is a, a sort of egalitarian principle built within the trust itself. And there is the controlling interest requirement, which, as I said, you can, in simple terms, it's a, it's a bit like handing the key of the council over to the trust. There's also something called the limited participation requirement. And I'll, I'll just pick on that for a moment, just as an example, of, to show how well thought through some of this legislation is. Next slide. You might be asking, well, how small a company could actually become an EOT? And there is a limit in the sense that what is blocked are small family companies where all the family members or most of them represent a big proportion of the employee base. In those sorts of situations, there is what is called the 40% NP over any test, which if you don't meet that at the time of the conversion and before and after to some degree, you can't convert to an EOT. So there is a block on small family companies converting and carrying on regardless. That's been spotted and blocked. Next slide. So remember the basic model. An EOT owns the company. The trustees sit above that, and the employee, the owner rather, has swapped in shares for debt. Next slide. That looks, doesn't it, at first sight, like a vendor financed MBO. You know, Nuco comes in and buys up ABC Limited, and the former owners get debt out of Nuco. And it's the managers who are the shareholders. That looks much the same, doesn't it? No, it's not. It's not anything like the same. Let me explain. Next slide. Because remember, in an MBO, Nuco owes the vendor debt, not an EOT. And Nuco is part of the, the same group as the company, while the EOT is not. The EOT is the owner. It's not part of the group. It's not part of a common structure. If the Nuco cannot fund the debt, Ownership can revert back to the vendors. As I said, do that with an EOT and the whole thing goes, um, the whole thing fails, basically. So that's a huge difference. You, you, you hand over the keys of the castle in an EOT. The new code, the vendor thinks, well, if I don't get my money, I can get it back. Um, if the EOT can't actually pay the debt, then the vendor can't force them to pay it because the company has no money. So um, ultimately, the vendors might have to write it off. Now, because they didn't pay tax on it originally, unlike in a conventional sale, that's not quite as painful an experience, is it? You haven't paid tax, so it's more tolerable if the company can't afford to, pay, to write it off. Not what you want to do, not something unique to, but it is possible. What that actually means is with EOTs, the payment period is often a lot longer, five to ten years, maybe. It's not uncommon, even longer. Well, in the MBOs, that's not commercially acceptable. You really go beyond two or three years. So that obviously has quite a big impact on the price, because if you can wait a lot longer for the money, sometimes the price can be higher even with an EOT than with a classic MBO. Another thing to bear in mind the difference is, of course, in a classic MBO, managers have direct individual ownership, 
not it's not collective ownership through the trust and of course with an mbo the sale to the vendor is not tax-free but a lot of differences you know, very considerable differences between the two models are they in terms of diagrammatically they can look similar next slide please we're running out of time here i know so i won't be able to cover everything i'd like to have done but i just want to say one thing before we wind up which is just to refer to something called the hybrid eot the examples we've considered so far to keep things simple are 100 percent owned by the eot now that doesn't have to be the case the legislation is very flexible here it is possible to have minority interests the key is that the eot has control if you haven't got control then it isn't an eot but the founders can, after the sale, continue to retain minority interests. Um, employees can receive share options, share schemes. You can use the SIP scheme, the EMI scheme, alongside. So you can combine direct employee ownership and indirect employee ownership in the same company. You can arguably get the benefit of the best of both worlds. Now, lawyers at this point get very nervous because they say this is going to create so many conflicts of interest in an EOT structure um, that it's just too difficult. Uh, I dispute that actually. I think when you have conflicts of interest, the answer is not that you say you can't do them, but you then have to learn how to manage them. And actually the issue with the hybrid EOTs is, is more sometimes to do with value. How do you value shares in an EOT when there are minority interests, there's an internal market maker, and, you know, there's perhaps a greater possibility ultimately of a sale because there are minority interests. I know Simon would like me to stop now. There's lots of other things I'd like to cover. Oh, that's, but, the, but that's yeah. the timer, William. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. That was, was absolutely fascinating. And we've got quite a few questions from our audience. So let me just uh have a look and uh let me just reiterate if i do miss out on your question uh please do go to to william directly can we have that ah oh, there we are that's the um that's the email addresses there for you so we'll leave those up while we while we do the q a uh now i've got an interesting one to start with um William, are you in favour of the key players in an EOT keeping back, say, 10% of the total equity in order to offer employee owners the chance to participate in workplace share schemes, perhaps as an incentive for top-level performance? I, I think in general, I, you know, I probably am. I mean, in the sense that I think it's not a bad idea to have the hybrid EOT to have a situation where um, you know employees in one form or other can also have direct shareholdings um, I mean not just the top people either I mean um, I think all employees share incentive plans are a very neat fit with the OTs I mean that employees as well uh, all employees as well can have a sense of direct ownership as well as indirect so I think I think the hybrid model is a good model it does, as I say, create more conflicts of interest. There's more things to manage. It's not as simple. More things to think about. But if you're willing to think about them, and you're willing as an organization to do the internal talking to each other, 
to resolve these conflicts, conflicts with the vendor as well, when they still haven't been paid off in full, then I think it's potentially a very good combination. It's fascinating stuff because it's a, a total break from the Anglo-Saxon model of, of managing a, a, a company. It's far more closer to, to the German model where you do have that, uh, that employee engagement and, and, and interest in the success of a, a, a company. So less combative, if you, if you, if you know what I mean. I think, that, I think that's certainly the hope. Um, and I do, one of the things I've tried to stress in the talk and I think to, to make an EOT long-term successful, you really do have to remember the first word on the team, employee. And it's not, the second word is ownership, but I think the third word actually ought to be responsibility. Because, you know, for employee-owned companies to succeed, employees really do have to take responsibility, either collectively or in, in cases individually, and realise that this is their business now. It will succeed or fail on the basis of how they work together cooperatively. And you know that is a huge opportunity people have been given, um, and they really and employees really need to recognise that. I mean, we live in a world, frankly, where employment is on the retreat. You know, we live in a world where zero hours contracts, you know, fake self-employment, a precariat. You know, young people, to a large degree in this country, have been thrown to the wolves. You know, are very, very insecure employment, and and as I said, often zero hours contracts are worse. So actually, being an employee of a company that is secure, is looking to the long term, is interested in its locality, is actually quite a privilege in today's world, mm -hmm. even without And I think you know, with that should come a sense of responsibility and duty as well. And not just for the vendor, who's obviously wanting to, you know, take a reward for all their sort of life, you know, putting their life into the business and creating it in the first place, but also the employees. So I think there's a big point of responsibility in this world and re-establishing re the importance of employees. But importance and rights come with responsibilities as well. Absolutely. Um... Can the vendor be on the board of trustees? Yes. I mean, I'm not saying it's ideal. And long term, I think obviously that's not going to be a long term solution. But the legislation doesn't prevent it. And I think wisely so, because, you know, there's a lot of moving parts in getting an EOT trust off the ground in the first instance. And I think you need to, each company, will have its own particular circumstances, its own particular um, history and personalities. And I think you need, I think it's right that the legislation gives, gives a degree of flexibility that, that can allow that to happen. Whether, you know, a trustee, whether a vendor will want that responsibility, because it is a responsibility, because you, you remember, you're having to act then for the interest of employees as a whole. You have to be able to, you know, like a Supreme Court justice, set aside your personal views about abortion and and so forth and look at the law and the interests of mm. the American people. So there's a parallel there. Uh, there is indeed. Um, I mean, it, an alternative route, could the vendor actually remain as an employee, say, be yes. the chairman of the company? Yes, I mean, of course they can, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is one of the things. A lot of traditional sales of companies, 
days, the vendor takes their money and disappears off into the sunset. And all that knowledge and experience and value is lost and, you know, just gone. Now, with an EOT, actually, there's a tremendous case for the, the, the vendor, if they're willing to, to remain, to act, you know, to keep that knowledge within the business, manage, help manage the transition, help allow employees to grow into the roles they need to take. So, no, I actually, I actually think it's a very good thing if they do. Mm. Um, entrepreneurs often invest an enormous deal of, 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 of themselves, you know, their, their souls, if you like, into the DNA mm. of their ventures. And, and that's really reflected in, in corporate culture, which can manifest, as you've said, you know, localism, you know, high environmental, social and, and, and governance standards. How can the board of trustees reflect this whilst maintaining fiduciary duty? Is there a conflict there? Yeah, I mean, there are conflicts. I mean, like in, in all businesses, there are conflicts between protecting the rights of shareholders, protecting the rights of employees, thinking about the environment, thinking about stakeholders. Those conflicts are there, I think, within any business today. But I, and I, and I, think, I think it's actually a mistake to um, focus on them, particularly in EOTs, or say that EOTs have a particular problem, because what the EOT actually does is it, it identifies them, it brings them to the surface, which are there anyway. Um, simply because it's got this different legal structure, and it and it and this different legal structure actually gives a framework for thinking about these issues in a different way and resolving them. I mean, the only way you can resolve conflicts like that, I believe, is talking and identifying the issues and talking about them. As I said, you know, I think one of the interesting things that potentially an EOT trustee board might do is rein back aggressive. Uh, tax abuse planning. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of owner-managed businesses over the last 25 years have been the victims. I would call them the victims of the aggressive abuse of um, tax planning schemes, uh, which, at the face value, look great and very attractive, and you can understand why people went down that route, which now have sort of blown up and caused no end of problems years later. You know, had there been a supervisory board with employees on it or answerable to employees a bit, maybe those sort of companies would have been less easily persuaded that those sort of techniques were good ideas. Here's hoping that Amazon go down the EOT routes. <laughs> um, looking to the future growth of, of companies which have taken the EOT path, do you think they might find any difficulties in accessing finance? So, in other words, are they going to be seen as a higher risk than non-EOT firms? And is there anything actually inherent in their structure that might actually present barriers to, to finance? Now, I think that's an extremely interesting question and one that I can't really do justice properly in the time we've got left. But I would just make a couple of observations. First of all, there is bank finance, and you know, you know, companies need bank finance from time to time, and that. But I think that you know the focus that an EOT should have on cash and thinking ahead, 
that should have been instilled with it from the day one it was converted, you know, should be the sort of thing that logically should reassure a bank. Of course, you know, very often banks like personal guarantees. Well, in an EOT, you can't expect the employees as a mass to hand out personal guarantees. So banks will need to adjust to a, you know, that kind of um, environment and you know, be realistic. I think you know, it's an interesting question about finance. I mean, um, can EOTs grow successfully into bigger businesses over time without recourse to um, you know, equity finance from organizations that ultimately wanted to force them into a sale. I mean, that I think is one of the big issues that we will see how that develops. I mean, they could certainly benefit from the existence or the development of a source of long-term equity finance that is not driven by, we want to have a sale in five years time. I think if, you know, if, if perhaps out of COVID, perhaps out of the crisis and the rethinking of everything, new forms of lending or new forms of investment i mean in that case that are more long term and not driven to a sale that might take minority interest rates and help finance the business um and then i think that could be very helpful and i think in turn in actually actually for the eot structure to really reach its full potential which i think is enormous actually i really think it could reshape business in many ways over the next 25 years that that source of new long-term equity funding to help growth and development probably is needed. William, I think uh, we are very much up uh, yeah. against the limits of time now. That's an excellent point on which to end. Apologies for all of those uh, of our audience whose whose question I didn't get round to uh, to asking. Please do contact William directly if you'd like to to continue this discussion. Uh, if I could have the next slide, please. I would just like to uh, once again thank uh, all our sponsors. Um, and uh, I would like to direct people to further resources on the ESOP website uh, and also uh, for bulletins on the FS Club as well. Uh, down the bottom of the screen there, you can see that you can subscribe to the FS Club if you'd like to, to get further information. Um, and finally, I would just like to say uh, a couple of words about our forthcoming uh, webinar series. If I could have the next slide, please. Uh, we have um, got a uh, series of webinars coming up. Please check our website for uh, for further information. Um, tomorrow we have got what should you outsource your chambers of commerce of choice. Uh, and as you can see, we've got uh, a number of other um, webinars coming up until the end of the month. Again, please visit our website for further details. Uh, we're now right up against it. So, William, thank you once again for a fascinating webinar and thank you to all our attendees uh, who all stuck it all through right to the very end. So thank you very much for your for your uh, for your patience and your your attention. William, thank you very much indeed once again. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, everyone.